Subject to Interpretation, a podcast which takes us deep into the topics that matter to professional interpreters. I'm your host, Maria Ceballos-Wallace. Welcome. I hope to cover topics from theory to practice. In other words, there's the ideal of how things should be or be done, and the reality of how things actually function in the real world. Our guests are people who have tried successfully, and sometimes unsuccessfully, to bridge that gap in interpreting and translating. This program is recorded via Zoom in both video and audio format. Today, we're going to talk about stepping out of our comfort zones into advocacy and perhaps even publishing. As interpreters, we train, we study, and we interpret. But is that enough to sustain us as professionals? We're going to talk to Sandro Tomasi. He's an interpreter, an advocate, a writer, and musician. He's also author of Tomasi's Law Dictionary. Sandro is the chair of the Najat Advocacy Committee. Welcome, Sandro. Thank you, Maria, and thank you to Delamora Interpretation. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Let's get right in because you've had a really interesting um, background, uh, professional and personal background. You have been a New York State staff interpreter since 2007 and a freelance interpreter for much longer than that. You've also been involved with various advocacy projects, including a particularly important one. And it's a mouthful, but it's a report supporting the reclassification and reallocation of the court interpreter job title. Tell us, tell us about the study and the conclusion of it. Well, um, the report basically has two premises by comparison. Uh, one is the comparison between state interpreter and federal interpreter as far as what the compensation is. And this idea actually did not come from me. It came from CFI, the California Federation of Interpreters, where they found that uh, by comparisons between state and federal titles, whether it was court attorney, court reporter, court officer, they were all getting about the same neighborhood salary range except for the court interpreter, who was making about half of what their federal counterpart was making. So we applied this to New York, and we also found that the uh, top salary uh, for federal court interpreter is almost double than what it is for the state court interpreter, whereas many other titles, they're about in the, in the, in the, in, in the ballpark. The second premise was to do a comparison between court interpreters and court reporters. So what do you get when you cross an interpreter with a translator? A court reporter. Yes, it's where you hear oral arguments and those are being translated simultaneously into written form. It's, so you're getting oral into written. So it's, the court reporter is really a cross between an interpreter and translator. And many of their same duties uh, apply to us. They translate simultaneously. We do too. Uh, they convert their language from English into stenography. We convert it from English into another language. Uh, they need to know legal terminology. They need to know uh, technical terminology, which helps them recognize these words in order to be able to capture them into stenotype. Uh, they need to be able to learn different accents and different uh, regionalisms, even from here in the United States. And for, you can imagine with the French, Arabic, and Spanish interpreters, those regionalisms can just multiply by the dozen. So 
by doing that comparison, and we believe it's probably the first report of its kind that really does an in-depth empirical comparison between interpreter and reporter, we are able to demonstrate that, yes, the two jobs are similar, but the job of the interpreter is much more difficult to achieve and to perform because while court reporters are basing their work on a um, phonetic-based translation, interpreters are basing their work on a cultural-based translation. And when we're involving culture and language, this is not only science, but it's, it's art. It's, it's the difference between uh, how one word could be said, but really it could have three or four different meanings. And while that same word in phonetic language gets typed as one phonetic input, with cultural-based languages, it could be different, uh, up to four or five different words. And, and those words also have their own meaning in the culture where they're double entendres. And the interpreter has to make sure that they're not giving the double entendre that's not wanted to be given. So that, that's what makes our job so much more difficult. So the, the report goes delves into that. And it also shows that um, how uh, court reporters are, are paid much more at the state level than they are at the federal level. So if I can share a chart with you, um, we were able to show that the federal court interpreters are making 49% more than the federal court reporters in salary. This is the maximum salary. Whereas in New York State, the formula is the other way around. Interpreters are making 35% less than their court reporters uh, in, in state level. So, and uh, up above, I can show you an, another chart. These are the different titles. We can see the state and federal judges make about the same. Court reporters, court clerk, court officers, all, all at the state level making a little bit more than what their federal counterparts are making whereas the interpreter is making 45% less than their federal counterpart. So how was um, this study received? Uh, well, it, it comes down to the bottom line. What we're addressing here is for a 300 staff interpreters across New York State to adjust their salaries to meet these numbers would I, I mean this, and this is a very basic calculation that I've done on my part, so I don't mean it to be authoritative in any measure, but I calculate it's about $20 million annually that will be have to throw, to, to be thrown in there. So when you want to change a system for $20 million a year, it's not going to be received. Um, you know, people are going to try to push back against that. But what we're saying is that although court interpreting is a relatively, still a relatively new profession, yeah. it's grown to the point where we're starting to recognize that not anybody can pass the court interpreter exam. And here's another, another chart that exemplifies this. Here we see the New York State bar exam, 68% passing rate. The New York State court reporter exam, 55% pass rate. And the interpreter, New York State uh, court interpreter exam is 10% pass rate. So that means that 90% of the people who took the court interpreter exam in New York State failed. This means that the court interpreter exam today as is with a, cut, with a fail rate at 90%, 90 is more difficult than the bar exam. That is true. 
And if we also look comparatively, federal courts are paying their law clerks, the ones who write the decisions for the judges and assist in legal research and all that, they're the same pay grades as the federal court interpreters. So the federal courts are valuing court interpreters as high as law clerks. So the question is, who's got the formula right? Is it the federal court that got the pay rate formula right, or is it the state court formula? Now, we do know that from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that they've categorized or qualified the job of interpreter and translator as a professional job like judges, lawyers, and doctors, and that the court reporter job has been qualified as administrative support worker. So the EEOC uh, qualification or classifications of jobs would lend credence to the federal court uh, valuation of the knowledge, skills, and abilities of interpreters. So, so what, what is there what is there to do then in order to bring um, those two together, close that gap? Well, for, first is is recognizing, you know, to what degree our skills. Uh, you know, and, and here's here's a skill. If uh, so, it, currently in New York State, they require interpreters to have zero education past high school. So all you need is high school diploma or the equivalent. They require interpreters to have zero experience, and not even the job description do they put that you have to pass the exam. Is they put that you have to take an exam, but it doesn't say anything about passing it. So let's look at the judge. The judge has to have sev- uh, has to pass the bar exam which means that that's seven years of higher education studies. The judge has to have 10 years of experience as a practicing attorney and has to have had passed the, the bar exam. So you get the seven, 10, and the one. You see seven, five, and one for court attorney, which is a law clerk, one, three, and one for the court reporter, and zero, zero, zero for court interpreter. Now we've done surveys and in our surveys, we were uh, able to demonstrate where do I get that number 12 for education? 12 years of education is based on the surveys. We were able to demonstrate that the court interpreters that are staff in New York State, most of them have a bachelor's degree or higher. So that means out of the 10% that pass the exam, most of those people really have a college education. Um, eight out of the 12 years are being accredited to second language acquisition. And I think this is a big one. And I think this is, this is where interpreter and translation industries have to look at the valuation of our skills. According to the second language acquisition experts, the SLA experts, it takes at least eight years of not language classes, but language immersion. This means classes in language, in, uh, in science, in math, in art, in all in that language in order to be able to learn language at the level of a native speaker. And if it takes uh, knowing that second language to the level of a native speaker, and mind you, court interpreters, community interpreters, medical interpreters, we all work, we're working in bi-direction, uh, bi-directional. It's not like the AIC interpreters that are in a booth and they're usually working into one direction. Right. We're working bi-directional. So it's, it's really, it's essential that community interpreters know both languages to the level of a native. So by adding that eight-year requisite, that it takes to learn a language. And a lot of people think that, oh, you just know a language. No, no, no. Well, wait a minute. If you learned it in your 
home country or if you learned it in this country as a heritage speaker and you were able to pass the court interpreter exam, that means you know the language up to a level that's qualified you to interpret in the courts to, to be able to do uh, work as an interpreter. So we have the eight as second language acquisition, the four years as bachelor's degree, and that's the 12. Then the ten, we found that there was on average 10 years of experience for the interpreters at the time of hiring, and the one is for uh, the passing of the exam. So when you look at 12, 10, and one compared to the judges, seven, 10, and one, the court interpreter might be the smartest person inside a courtroom. <laughs> I've always thought that sometimes. So, so, but we're, so you add 10 and 12 and one. So are we, we're talking that interpreters have about 21 years experience by the time they get in? Well, I mean, it, it's, um, I'm not counting the, the exam as a year, but the, okay. but the other years that the, the, the 12 and the 10, uh, that, that would be 22 years. Um, there's somehow or some way or another these, these years, because knowing another language is not a requirement to get a high school degree or high school diploma, nor is it a requirement to get a college degree. So some way or another, interpreters have to find a way to learn that second language to a proficient level. So be that as it may you have to give credit. And what I like about the numbers is now you're starting to quantify the skill and the knowledge the interpreters have to have in order to perform that job. And that skill and knowledge is by no means easy. And this is proven time and again when we see that 90% of the interpreter candidates are failing the test. This is a very difficult job. So what um, what can we do about well first of all we what can we do about getting candidates to pass the test um, at higher levels and then um, what can we do to recruit better candidates? Well, one thing right off the bat is if the federal courts are off offering almost one hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year at top salary. And New York State Court is offering almost $85,000 top salary. Where are the candidates going to flock to? Federal court. Right. And I would be willing to bet dollars to donuts that there's a lot of candidates that are not even showing up to take the exam when they heard that top salary is eighty-five grand. So right now, I mean – should we take that lesson from federal court and start valuing interpreters as law clerks and giving that top? So, and that's what I'm saying. It, it's not going to be easy. It's a $20 million a year budget increase, at least here in New York state. But if you do that increase and you're willing to put the time and the effort, just like the courts were willing to put the time and effort for law clerks, time and effort for court reporters and court reporters, by the way, are paid by the page for their transcripts. This is a skill that court interpreters are required to uh, translate documents. We're not paid, paid by the page for the, the translation of documents. So here's a skill that it, it, court reporters are being valued for, but interpreters, oh no, well that fits under your job. No, 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 no. We all in the interpreter and translator industries, we all know very well, just because you're a good interpreter doesn't mean you're a good translator and vice versa. They're two different skill sets. 
Absolutely. So have you had any interest from interpreters in other states? Have they reached out to you for advice on similar matters? Um, a little bit, not that much. Uh, I, I think that this is all so new. Um, no one really thought that interpreters should be paid more than court reporters. You know, I mean, really, because court reporters are have long been um, so looked up to, so respected. It's such a respected profession. And they have, you know, judges want to make sure that their court reporters are fine. How many times have I heard court interpreters that are doing double the talking in a courtroom because they have to interpret everything? And all of a sudden, a bailiff or a court officer comes up to the court reporter and says, oh, would you like some water? during the middle of a trial. And then the interpreter's sitting there and they're like, well, what about me? Interpreters get no respect. So when you're presenting data that this report has done, that's so new that really takes second language acquisition and, and quantifies it as a knowledge or, and skill for interpreters that quantifies the, you know, through the surveys, how much experience. It's going to take a while, you know, it's, it might take five, 10, another 50 years. Uh, so the, the good news is that it's cutting edge data. And by the way, I really have to mention this. I didn't write the report by myself. Um, when I set out to do this, I was like, let me get some people that really know about this. Because um, I had some ideas. But so I was able to enlist some of the really the, the top experts in the country. One is Robert Joe Lee, who was in, in charge of court interpreter services for the state of New Jersey, who had been involved with the consortium of, of states early on with the National Center for State Courts. Um, to me, Robert Joe Lee is like the godfather of court interpreter services Absolutely. in this country. I mean, he's phenomenal on the administration, having worked with the administration for so many years. On the labor part of it, you have Mary Lou Aranguren, who uh, had worked for years with the California Federation of Interpreters, who is a uh, association slash union, and had uh, been appointed to um, serve on uh, Senate committees, on judicial committees, and had uh, been in negotiating committees. So for many years, Mary Lou has done some tremendous work out in California. And then I had the fortune to also have Milena Caldelari Waldron, who uh, was up until recently on the board of Interpreters United, which is a medical interpreter union in Washington State. But Milena is also a certified court interpreter. So, with their input, uh, we it took us seven months to to write this report. And uh, I, I, we can maybe share the link uh, later on for your Absolutely. viewers and listeners. We'll uh, also include it on our blog. For okay. This, yeah. For subject to interpretation. Great. Great. So going forward with the lessons that have been learned, or the data that has been acquired, um, how do you think interpreters in other states um, should proceed if they are interested in? perhaps finding out whether their state is providing equitable pay or whether, or whether they, um, they, they even want to um, address some of the other inequities that might be in the profession. So as far as pay, uh, I, I would say do a state to federal comparison. 
and your for your state and for the federal you would have to look at the uh, federal territories because federal pay fluctuates depending on which territory it's in some some are more expensive than than others and then also if there's court reporters that work in in your courts do also a salary comparison between interpreters and reporters okay so as for other things um that's what something that I'm still looking for. Um, we recently had a um, a special investigator uh, appointed to investigate discrimination here in New York State. So we sent some some letters uh, to the special investigator, and and that those got included in the report. So, um, you know, with with these special investigations and and reports, um, sometimes things look like they're moving in the right direction, but it's it's really it, it you really have to be uh you you have to it's not just writing a letter you know i mean listen if if you don't want to do anything else but write a letter go ahead write the letter uh cuz that will be another an, another little brick onto the building of 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 what we're building what what in professional interpreters are building in this country what they've built before us i mean look at the interpreters back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s what they had to go through you know before you had any guidance from new jersey or from uh, fundamentals of court interpretation to or the bilingual courtroom to really now we have some some data we have some books we have uh, a lot to build from but we still have to build more and interpreters can build a little bit more in their own states they can write a letter they can use this report to, to pattern it off some you know it even though this reports 50 pages their report can be two pages you know it, uh, but start letting know letting administration officials that interpreters are of a very high skill set and that they should be paid as a, uh, a very high skill set and should be looked at uh, and respected that way I want to commend you for not just beginning the project on your own, but for really reaching out to other professionals that can really provide the context of what you were trying to do. So by reaching out to other sectors, um, I think the, the, the report really has a lot more credibility and it's, and it's really based on, on substantial information rather than the idea that, well, interpreters just want to get paid more. Well, really what interpreters would like to do is they'd like to be a recognized for the skills and for the expertise that they bring to to their jobs and if they're not being recognized and other sectors are being recognized more than then then of course that's that's not really equitable. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I want to um I I, I, I want to move out to another topic with you because I, I really think that um, that you have been able to accomplish lots of different things in your in your interpreting profession, not just as a, an interpreter in staff or maybe freelance, but you've really gone beyond that. You've um, worked on this study and you are obviously very active in advocacy for the profession, but you've also expanded for at least for Spanish interpreters, you've really been able to help them expand the way they look at terminology, the way they assess the terminology that they are using for 
fun equivalents, language equivalents, uh, when when interpreting in legal courts. And of course, you are the author of Domasi's Law Dictionary. Uh, and I want you to talk to me a little bit about that, because maybe it's just me, but you know, I have a hard time keeping track of my own simple glossaries. Sometimes it just seems like a conglomeration of word after word after word. But you did so much more, and it's really become a staple and a resource in many interpreters that um, in their library uh, that I that I know of. So talk to me about this project. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I mean, um, the the dictionary is actually being used in some interpreter courses as as part of their workbook you know to, to use and which is great um because that way interpreters get to learn the, the right stuff right from the beginning um my my problem and i envisioned this early on while i was actually writing the dictionary was that i was going against bilingual legal lexicography dogma i was going against what alcaraz Baro, uh, Cabanejas, you know, all, all of the great legal, bilingual legal lexicographers were saying, you know, and I'm like, well, who's going to believe me? You know, I'm putting this in a book, but they're going to call me crazy. And, and that's when I started thinking to myself, okay, let me put excerpts of statutes of the Spanish-speaking countries, so they can see the criminal procedure code, the penal code, how those words are actually being used. And that's not just, I'm not making up these translations. The, these are actually based on what those cultures decided to name these legal institutions. So it turned out great because what better than not only going be beyond a glossary where you have a term and it's translation or two beyond a dictionary where you have a little bit of a definition, but to see comparative laws and, and be able to see, uh, uh, see that the target language laws and, and the interpreters have experience here in the U S. So I, I didn't bother putting the English part because each state would be different. So they could all kind of match that up but to see those words in context. So once you know what the term is, now you see it in context. And this, this context gives students, professionals, a much deeper meaning to the word, a much deeper understanding to the word. And hopefully in turn, they'll be able to incorporate it in, in their own uh, professional lives. So how long did it take you to, from start to finish, to write, edit, compile this project? So the, the first edition took me about five years, okay. um, you know, my spare time, basically. And by, bef you know, by the time I had published, I had um, edited all on my own. It was completely done on my own. And, you know, there's some, a lot of grammatical mistakes and typos in there. Even after 50 cover to cover proofreading, proofreadings of that uh 50 yeah i, I read it cover wow. to cover 50 times um hopefully not in the same day no definitely <laughs> not uh and then with a the second edition i um was able to get a team of of editors 
Um, I had uh, Lucia Colombino, who is an ATA certified translator and a lawyer in Uruguay. Mm-hmm. I had Caddy Kaufman, who is a federal court interpreter and a lawyer in, in Chile. Uh, I had uh, Victor Jortak, who was a uh, former uh, magistrate judge in Argentina and is a Minnesota certified interpreter. And then uh, Carlos Barragan, who's a law professor uh, from Mexico. And basically, they were the ones that that would uh, point me in in one direction or another. And uh, it uh, it, it was interesting. It was actually very enriching. Um, They would um, point some things out and then I would shoot back and I said, no, but this. And then they would say, no, but that. Uh, And in some cases, I was proven wrong. And in some cases, they were proven wrong. But for it was a, a, a very enriching project and 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 what was on what made it onto the second edition was a much more accurate and um, uh, much more accurate work and, and also in, enlarged um, so um, so yeah it was it was it was really a, a very nice project so you know in addition to for example having the dictionary among other dictionaries how how do you think what what can you share with listeners in terms of tips or just some of what you learned about researching terminology that could be practical for interpreters to use on a daily basis when they're going about their work so in the beginning i started like everybody else i would go into the uh simon and schuster's or the uh, Oxford bilingual dictionaries and look up a term. And then I started getting, a, you know, I started working for uh, in the legal uh, arena. And then I got myself a bilingual law dictionary. So, you know, I was stepping Fancy up my that. <laughs> and uh, I uh, somebody gave me a um, uh, a copy of uh, Manuel Osorio's uh, monolingual law dictionary in Spanish. Oh, and that was like my first monolingual work. And, and so that's when I started reading that. And I, I, so what I would do is I take from the bilingual law dictionary, the three or four terms that were suggested there and see how they measured up in Spanish and look at those definitions. And then that's when I started saying, well, wait a minute. In Espanol, it doesn't say this. It's, it's something else. So, you know, who, who's right? The, the, obviously, the monolingual source has much more credibility. And so that kind of started growing. You know, I have about 50 English-Spanish law dictionaries. I have about 25 Spanish monolingual law dictionaries, about 25 English monolinguals. I have two law encyclopedias in Spanish. I have basically over, over easily over 100 works uh of monolingual english or spanish and bilingual english spanish works and then i have every criminal procedure in every national criminal procedure code and every national penal code of all 20 spanish-speaking countries wow so we so a an interpreter for let's say another language french or german would then we obviously we have many Spanish-speaking countries, and perhaps you know less speakers of other la- uh, less countries that speak other languages with legal systems. But nevertheless, a, con- a language like French might have um, quite a number. So, how would you suggest that they go about researching their terminology? 
So the first thing, uh, you know, uh, try to get whatever bilingual law dictionary there is in your combination. But as far as monolinguals, try to find out which is the Black's Law Dictionary in your language, which is the authoritative monolingual law dictionary of a particular country. Uh, once you find that out, then also, um, and, and that'll cost some money, um, but what's free most of the time is you can go and get the codes. So whether you work in uh, family law, civil law, criminal law, you can get these codes online and they're for free. So, and the codes are really, that, that's even better than the monolingual law dictionaries. I mean, that's, that's, those are the actual legal terms that are, that are used in, in these countries. So um, yeah, you, uh, if I were to suggest reading anything, pick up a code and, and, and don't, feel like it's too much for you um pick it up pick it up on page 53 you know you don't have to do it from beginning to end or or look up a term you know you can do a control find and look up right. a term whatever you're looking for and and so really the the codes uh, if you can get actual laws and uh, th that would be the best so this approach will essentially work for any language. It just requires a little bit of work and elbow grease, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, Sandro, you are also a contributor to several prominent dictionaries, Black's Law Dictionary, Cabañelas, Dals. How did this happen? Was this before or after you wrote Tomasi's Law Dictionary? Um, it was, so the bilingual law dictionaries were before. Uh, with Dahl and and uh, Cabanillas, um, and Blacks was after. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it, it was kind of I guess looking at it, that was a natural evolution in that I s basically I saw mistakes in, in the bilingual law dictionaries and I said, hey, I see mistakes. Do do you want to know what they are? And, and so you know, uh, Cabanillas and Dahl were yeah. Let, let me know. Okay. Um, so it was well received. I mean, one wouldn't think that, you know, publishers of a dictionary, you know, would be so open to correcting themselves. Well, I've offered my services to other authors who have shut the door on me. Yeah. So that, that's happened. But, hey, I mean, you know, if they're willing to live with mistakes and, and continue publishing, you know, that's their choice. Um, and then, when you know, once I had written mine, because I was always using Black's Law Dictionary and I started finding mistakes in Black's Law Dictionary. Oh, I was wow. like, well, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not right. And so then that's when I, I, I uh, contacted uh, Brian Garner and uh, he said, yeah, yeah, shoot me over some stuff. And, and um, so that's, that's basically how that happened. So as an interpreter, what drives you to not just go to court every morning, interpret and come home. What drives you to work on advocacy projects, work on a dictionary, improve, help improve the information that's available to other interpreters? You know, I think I may have answered that question like uh, two days ago. I was walking and, and I'm, I'm an older brother and you know, older the older brothers tend to be like the the trailblazers, and sometimes we're the ones that pay the price. You know, we we get bit by the alligator while you know blazing through the trails, and then the younger brothers are say, "Hey, 
the older brother just got bit by the alligator. Don't go that way. You know, so, so there's some of that. So as, as far as being an older brother, I, I feel like I've been bitten enough by a lot of bilingual law dictionaries in the past where there's wrong answers. And I always felt like, uh, like writing something saying, Hey, you know, I've gone this way. It's bad. Check this out. This is a much better road for you to take. And I think that's what, you know, that's certainly true with the dictionary. And, and uh, that's what I'm seeing with, with the, 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 the compensation and knowledge, skills, and abilities for interpreters that they really haven't been properly recognized to the level that they need to be recognized and safe for federal court. Federal court ha has gotten there and maybe they might still have a few things to iron out, but they're way ahead than state courts. So right now I'm, I'm kind of like shedding a light on, on this trail so that others can, can uh, uh, hopefully follow it. As an interpreter, Sandro, how has your professional practice been influenced, perhaps even enriched by your work as an advocate and as a writer? Well, as a writer, uh, like my dictionary, that, that used to be, you know, the interpreter's notepad, you know, where we write down the terms that we don't know and we have to look up. That notepad grew into a dictionary, basically. Uh, so it, it, today, I mean, I, I, and this is when I, when I do seminars, you know, all the professional interpreters, oh, but they'll never understand that legal term. They'll never... And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, no, no, they will. Because the Sandro that used to interpret 20 years ago used to use the same terms that everybody else is using. But today I'm using much higher register legal terms. But the thing is, and, and a lot of interpreters will agree with this, when they hear lawyers explain things to their clients, there's some lawyers that explain things that they're all over the map and it makes no sense what, whatsoever. But some lawyers are really good at explaining things with the actual legal terms. So if we can actually look at the code, start understanding how that language is, how that legal language, to the point where it becomes second nature, when we go to interpret, it sounds a lot easier than what it actually is. Um, so uh, as far as the advocacy, uh, I'm fairly... I mean, I've been doing advocacy here and there for many years. I think we all have in many ways. Uh, but as far as this project, it, it you know, kind of really started in 2018 when, when we set with this. And, and I'd really like to abandon it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a lot of work. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's not, I don't really feel like, I, I don't it's not my job to convince people, you know, um, although it kind of, you know, I've, I've made it my job, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, Hey, Hey, wait a minute, but look at this information. Look at this. So, so it would be nice if somebody else took over the torch or. Well, it'd be nice if everybody started taking over the torch. Um, you know, uh, but you know, who knows time will tell maybe I'm the guy that's wrong about this. Maybe I've got the numbers wrong. Maybe I've got all the figures wrong. Maybe, you know, Robert Joe Lee didn't do his best work when he was advising me. Maybe Mary Lou didn't do her best work. Maybe we're wrong. And, and that, that could be, maybe we didn't get everything hundred percent right. I, I'd like to think that we got 
most of everything pretty right. I mean, it took us seven months to write this. And I'd like to think that it can uh, inspire others to at least look at the situation and see how undervalued interpreters are. And one day where I'd like to see where state court human services departments start adopting the model that the federal court human services department has done. And uh, so really, I mean, time will tell, but uh, I know that I'm not going to knock myself uh, dizzy or, or, you know, in the head or, you know, I'm not going to do bad things to myself if these things don't happen now. Obviously I like them for them to happen now, but um I, all I can do is illuminate and I'll try to illuminate as much as I can, but yeah, it would be nice if some other people started to uh, pick up the flashlight as well. <laughs> so there you have it, folks. Um, Sandra Tomasi, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us here on subject to interpretation. We're thrilled to have spoken with you and you let us know what new projects you come up with. Sounds good. Thank you, Maria. Take care. the La Mora Institute has a membership for legal interpreters. Stay up to date with continued education credits by taking advantage of interesting and informative monthly webinars, free educational resources, and access to special discounts. Other benefits include job postings from agencies and judicial offices from all over the country. Join us for free on our website at delamorainstitute.com forward slash become dash a dash member. We hope that this podcast has enriched your journey along this fascinating field of interpretation. Perhaps you've learned something new, remember something you had forgotten, or are now encouraged to try something different. If you're watching this on YouTube, please share your comments with us below. And if you're listening to us, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our weekly episodes. Take care.